0: Hey folks, welcome to Footnotes. I'm your host, Jamar Tisby, bringing news and views to help you become a more informed citizen, activist, and believer. In this episode, I talk about why Kanye West's Jesus is King album has been so controversial, what Mississippi's election tells us about politics in America today, and why you need to bring your full racially and ethnically embodied self to the table. First, a few announcements, so please be patient. Number one, reviews, as we always do. We're up to 235 reviews from 226 last episode. Thank y'all so much. It's so hard to put a podcast out there and have people listen to it, let alone review it. But you all, as listeners, have been spectacular. Um, if you haven't left a review, remember to subscribe, rate, and review. You can do it today. Today's a little bit different. We actually have a negative review that I'd like to read and unpack just a little bit, a one-star review of footnotes. It comes from level user Drexel. And this person writes, this podcast is merely a counter-reaction towards republicanism and its association with Christianity. Christianity is too radical, compassionate, and authentic to sit well in either party. If you're looking for fairness, balance, and truth, look elsewhere. Well, thank you for your honesty, but let me respond. As a counter-reaction towards republicanism and its association with Christianity, you hit on something important. There is this almost one-to-one identification between republicanism and Christianity. I think that should be separated. I think that's an unhealthy uh, identification. Uh, I don't know if I'd use the words counterreaction, but I certainly have a reaction To this assumption that the grand old party is synonymous with God's own party. It's not. And so I do present a different perspective. This person goes on to say that Christianity is too radical, compassionate, authentic. It doesn't have a home in either party. Well, of course, there's an extent to which that's true. But... We also have to acknowledge reality that we are living in a democracy with two major political parties, and most of us who are believers are going to have to choose one party or the other, or you go independent or or something of that nature. But if if you're looking at national elections, that's going to be from one of the two parties. Which begs the question then, what do we do? What do we do as believers knowing that both parties are flawed, both parties fall short of the biblical standard of morality. I think it's too easy to say, well, Christianity doesn't fit in either party and sort of detach ourselves from politics altogether or sort of reflexively go toward uh, one one party. And when we're speaking of Christianity, particularly white Christianity, often the assumption is that party is the Republican Party. So yeah, I am making a commentary on that. Um, And then lastly, it says, if you're looking for fairness, balance, and truth, look elsewhere. I disagree, even though I am presenting a... different perspective. Um, I I try to characterize other viewpoints as charitably as possible. Maybe I fall short, but it's unintentional. And then uh, certainly, I'm not even trying to strike a balance. I'm not trying to hit 50-50 of any uh, view and and counter view on anything. I'm giving you my perspective, um, which is Not a secret. And then uh, for truth, well, I'm doing my best to make sure that I have the facts right. So um, I do appreciate the review, even though it's a negative assessment. But I have one more review to read. This one is from a different perspective on the same topic. It's from S. Walker523. It's a five star review. This person writes, Footnotes with Mr. Tisby is exactly what I need to reveal the deeply ingrained beliefs that have resulted from being raised in a white nationalist, quote, conservative Christian cult. As a young person, I learned to digest the news through Rush Limbaugh and Fox News. Mr. Tisby explains contexts and theologies that are new to me and points out when seemingly inconsequential events reveal a deeper story of racism or injustice thank you so much for the labor that you put into this podcast. I appreciate that review. I appreciate especially because this person's talking about learning to digest news through Rush Limbaugh and Fox News. And oftentimes if Christians are giving commentary or even looking for commentary, it's through sources like these. So I'm definitely trying to present an alternative to the sort of standard, what I would call culture war commentary that comes from uh, politically right-leaning or Republican Christians. So I appreciate that you appreciate it and all the labor that goes into it. Thanks to Bo, thanks to Christina Button for helping make this podcast a reality. One, oh, Two more quick announcements. You're going to like it. Watch this. So we've already done one book giveaway on footnotes. I gave away a racial justice starter kit book bundle. We're doing our second book giveaway right now. And it's just one book. The title is Evangelicals, Who They Have Been, Are Now, and Could Be. From the blurb of the book, it says, evangelicals provides an illuminating look at who evangelicals are, how evangelicalism has changed over time, and how evangelicalism continues to develop in sometimes surprising ways. This book um, is an edited volume. The editors are Mark Knoll, George Marsden, and David Bebbington. They are eminent scholars in the field of American religious history, particularly evangelical history. I was one of the um, contributors to the book, so I have a chapter in there. The book is divided into four parts. The first part is the history of evangelical history. Second part, the current crisis, looking back. The third part, the current crisis, assessment. And it's in this third part that, that my chapter is in. And part four is historians seeking perspective. And so my chapter is entitled, surprisingly, Are Black Christians Evangelicals? I can't get into all the full details. You'll have to buy the book or win the book. So the question I'm tackling in my chapter is, given that many black Christians share very similar theological beliefs as white evangelicals, should black Christians also be considered evangelical? Um, My approach is that that question is actually uh, too vague, and that we need to be specific. So um, I talk about answering that question from three perspectives, historical perspective, a theological perspective, and a personal or an experiential perspective. And then I gave a case study of one Tom Skinner, a black evangelical uh, who had um, a, a prolific ministry, especially in the 60s and 70s. So you can get this book. Um, there are other fantastic contributors such as Kristen Coves-Dumay, Molly Worthen, Tim Keller, Thomas Kidd, and many, many more. All you have to do to win this book is share this podcast episode on social media. Go to Facebook, go to Twitter, go to Instagram. You can share it on one of those platforms or all of them. Take a screenshot and send it to me at footnotespod1 at gmail.com. That's footnotespod and the number one at gmail.com. Last announcement. I'm going to South Africa. Good Lord willing, uh, the next time you hear a new episode of Footnotes, I will have gone to the continent. So I've been to Egypt before when I studied abroad in college, but I've never been to sub-Saharan Africa. And of course, I've never been to South Africa. I'm going as part of a small delegation to the South Africa Symposium on Race. This is a group put on by Presbyterians, and I'm going with that group. Uh, and I would love your support. So number one, prayers are appreciated. We are looking for knowledge. We're looking to learn We're we're coming to contribute some insights, uh, some perspective on uh, race in the United States. But but certainly for myself, I'm coming as a learner wanting to learn more about apartheid si- South Africa, um, race relations in that country and how we might improve <laughs> race relations and racial justice in the United States. Another way, a concrete way that you can help is that we need to each raise a $1,000. And so if you are into supporting this kind of work, you can contribute. Um, there's a website. You can go to mtw.org slash missionaries slash tisby-jamar. I know that's complicated, so I will put the uh, web address in the show notes to this. Or you can go to mtw.org slash missionaries and use the account number. The account number is 400295. That'll go directly to my fund. That's 400295, looking to raise $1,000. And it's relatively soon. Uh, We leave in the middle of November, and uh, we're gone for almost two weeks. So if you are inclined to support, please do so sooner than later. But either way, I'd love your prayers, and you will certainly be hearing more about this South Africa trip on footnotes in the coming weeks. On to the news. Jesus is King. On October 25th, legendary producer and hip-hop artist Kanye West released his latest album-length project entitled, Jesus is King. You heard that right. Jesus is King is referring to the actual Jesus who Christians worship and follow, and it's talking about Jesus Christ's kingship over all creation. This is Kanye's first album since he declared that he had become a Christian. As you can imagine, a Christian rap album from one of the most popular and prolific artists in the genre is destined to create buzz and controversy. What is the controversy? Number one, a lot of people are asking, is Kanye's conversion real? Well, who can know? I mean, only time will tell, right? Like, we can definitely look at his words and his actions and say whether they are in line with what the Bible teaches, Um, but let's take him at his word, all right? We would Want, I think, for people to take us at our word. So if Kanye says he's Christian, let's assume he's Christian. But let's also recognize the unique context that he's in, right? Before we rush to judge Kanye's conversion, can we pause to imagine what it would be like to be a baby Christian who's learning the faith and taking all the half steps and missteps that go along with that? But you're doing it in front of millions of people. With your every move scrutinized. So Kanye is always a world, already a world famous artist. Now, after his conversion, he 's still a world famous artist world famous artist that attention is not going anywhere in fact, it might be heightened or or uh, magnified because of his conversion and I think any of us would prefer not to have those early weeks, months, and years of our Christian faith scrutinized under a magnifying glass by millions of people and analyzed and opinionated on uh, on social media but that 's what he 's doing so um, maybe we can just bear that in mind as as we watch this man. Um But here's another point that I think we need to be aware of as we look at Kanye's Christianity. I think everyone is looking for Kanye to be their kind of Christian. If we reject his Christianity, might it be because he doesn't fit with, quote, our kind of Christian? If we embrace Kanye, might it be because he fits what we think a Christian should be like and do? All I'm saying is, as we look at Kanye's Christianity, we would do well to remember that we are all prone to want Christians or people who say they're Christians, to act more like us and our kind of Christian, whether that's a particular denomination or theological tradition, particular lingo or books or people they like, things of that nature. We want them to be in our branch of Christianity. But just because they're not in our branch of Christianity doesn't mean they're not a Christian. So that's just something to be aware of, not just for Kanye, but for anyone, especially um, people of faith in the public sphere. But there's more controversy, particularly related to this album. And that's, whose Christianity does Kanye represent? So it's tricky to assess the authenticity of someone's conversion, but I do think it's fair to analyze the content of religious beliefs that one puts out there and to ask, what do these beliefs represent? Or what tradition do they come from? Who do those beliefs empower and disempowered. That's what's on my mind as I'm listening to the lyrics of Kanye's album. So much of the criticism directed Kanye's way had to do with how he dealt with the black experience on the Jesus is King album, or rather, how he didn't deal with the black experience. My co-host on another podcast, Tyler Burns, put it very well in Burns' very first article for the Washington Post, which is entitled, How Kanye West Embeds Black Gospel Music in White Evangelical Theology. I'll say it again, How Kanye West Embeds Black Gospel Music in White Evangelical Theology. Byrne said this, despite his personal honesty and a story of redemption, listening to the album will likely leave many black Christians wondering, does Kanye's Jesus care about the disinherited? Of course, disinherited comes from Howard Thurman's magisterial and very short book, Jesus and the Disinherited, talking about folks with, uh, as Thurman declares it, with their backs against the wall. And he goes through the people in Matthew twenty-five: the imprisoned, the naked, the orphan, the widow—those kinds of people. And as black people in general and black Christians are listening to Kanye album, Kanye's album, they're wondering: Is this the kind of religion? this the kind of Christianity that cares about those people, about the historic black experience. Burns went on to explain how the enthusiastic support that white evangelicals have thrown Kanye's way has given many black people pause. So a publication from the conservative Focus on the Family Group said this, quote, all we have to say is bravo, Kanye, bravo. It's great to see a man who is truly being changed by his faith in Jesus Christ and wanting to see his family embrace that as well. None other than Donald Trump Jr. also supported Kanye's album. He put out a tweet that said, Kanye West is cracking the culture code. Kanye West's new album, Jesus is King, is the epitome of fearless creativity and, quote, dangerous, unapproved ideas. Leftists, Always try to silence those who are speaking truth. They're waging a war on our family and culture. Kanye is a pioneer. Wow, Uh, that is a glowing endorsement from the son of the uh, current president, who most, by far the vast majority of black citizens do not support. And again, I think Tyler puts it well in his article when he wrote this. While Jesus is King feels like it should be a cultural moment of celebration for all Christians, it should come as no surprise that many black Christians question who this moment will ultimately empower. So there's a lot to unpack here. And let me just give you three quick considerations as you listen or don't listen to Kanye's Jesus is King. Number one, um, there's the issue of what you think of this album musically. And this is a matter of taste, right? It's, it's the aesthetics. It's, it's the sonic sound of the album. Do you like it or not? Do you like the beats? Do you like, um, the cadence? All of that stuff. There's always going to be a difference of opinion on this. I mean, even some of the most legendary artists and their albums are subject of frequent disagreement, whether it's, the Beatles or Boys to Men, um, everybody's going to have a difference of opinion. So that's one issue. A second issue what you think of this album is also wrapped up in what you think of Kanye West himself as a person beyond the music. So it's hard, especially under this presidential administration, to separate a person from their politics, not just because politics has taken on religious dimensions for some, but because there are really important matters at stake, such as climate change and whether we have fair elections that are free from foreign influence. So this Jesus is King Kanye is also the MAGA hat, fanneled Donald Trump Kanye. It's the slavery was a choice Kanye. It's the black people have been brainwashed into voting for Democrats, Kanye. And so it's understandable that many people, including myself, view Kanye's latest work through that lens. Who does he represent? Who does he stand for? More to the point, there's a total absence of the black experience except aesthetically in his music. So not every song has to be about social justice, no. But if you're going to use the black gospel tradition, then shouldn't there be a nod to the experience that that music came out of? And lastly, what you think of this Jesus is King album is probably closely attached to what you think about Christianity itself. This album is so intertwined with how one views religion, specifically Christianity, that your opinion of the album becomes a proxy for your thoughts about Christianity as a religion itself. For many people, Christianity has becomes synonymous with white evangelicalism, and more particularly, Christianity means white evangelical support for President Donald Trump. They see the whole project of Christianity through that lens and consider most people who claim Christ as hypocrites or that they have a very suspect political agenda. So, I think all of that um, is, is going into how we evaluate Kanye's Jesus is King album. So, ultimately listen to the album or don't, love the album or hate it, but what Jesus is King shows us is what we really think about redemption, politics, and Christianity. For making these topics front and center in the context of music, Kanye has yet again done something remarkable. Are we in another blue wave? In the first week of November, several states had important elections. Kentucky, Virginia, and Mississippi all made the news, but for very different reasons. In Kentucky and Virginia, there's talk of an ongoing blue wave in which Democrats are taking over in areas where Republicans have held sway for many, many years. Mississippi, of course, didn't see much change. And therein, I think, is a story that applies to all Americans in all politics in the country. But we'll get to that in a second. So let's talk about Kentucky. The incumbent governor, Matt Bevin, ran against Democratic Attorney General Andy Bashir. As of now, Andy Bashir has declared victory, but Bevin refuses to concede in an election that is being decided by around just 5,000 votes. No matter how the election ultimately turns out, Democrats are hailing it as a victory over a Republican incumbent candidate who received support from Donald Trump by way of a rally the night before the election. So they're looking at this very um, narrow victory of a Democrat beating the Republican governor in a state that is considered red um, And against a governor that was endorsed by Donald Trump, they're looking at that as a major victory and a sign of the public's distaste with the current president and the current state of the Republican Party. Let's move on to Virginia. Democratic lawmakers now have a majority in both the House and the Senate of the state government for the first time in two decades, along with their Democratic governor, Ralph Northam. Democrats are completely in control of the legislature, which clears the way for initiatives like stricter gun control, a higher minimum wage, and expanding Medicare. So, if you are for these kinds of politics, if you are a Democrat— These are good days in these off-year elections in Kentucky and Virginia, The Mississippi also had an election. Republican Lieutenant Governor Tate Reeves beat Democratic challenger Attorney General Jim Hood. Hood came closer than any other Democratic candidate for governor in recent years, and that in and of itself is remarkable. But what stuck out to me about the election is that the nation just sort of gives a collective shrug And says, well, that's Mississippi. Really? Is that all the energy and creativity we have to put into one of the most storied states in our union? Mississippi is red, really, really red. So it's not a surprise that a Republican won in the gubernatorial election. But do we just write off the whole state and others like it that seem too deep red to change? This matters to the rest of the country. You may not care much about Mississippi, but we observe, but what we observe and tolerate in Mississippi tells us a whole lot about what we may see and tolerate in other parts of the country. So look, Mississippi still has a Confederate emblem on its state flag. Of course, that says a lot about Mississippi, but what does it say about the rest of the country, too? Doesn't mean anything that other states and lawmakers say relatively little about this terrorist symbol on one of our state flags. Mississippi is deep red. That's no surprise. But how did it get that way? Nearly 10% of Mississippi voters are disenfranchised for various reasons, and it's closer to 2 to 3% in most other places. There are other obstacles for anyone other than the Democratic Party to win in a statewide election. In Mississippi, to win statewide election, you not only have to win a majority of the votes, but a majority of the 80 plus counties, too. That puts black people at a severe disadvantage because they're concentrated in counties in the in the Mississippi Delta region and also in Jackson. Meanwhile, there are dozens of counties with very small populations but they're comprised almost entirely of white people. And so a Democratic challenger and and particularly a person of color faces an uphill battle to win those counties and a majority of counties in the state. And this is all in the context of the fact that Mississippi is the poorest state in the union. It has the highest proportion of black people, nearly 40%. It's, I think, exactly around 37 38% of any state. And those two factors, the poverty of the state, And the proportion of black people, a legacy from enslavement and sharecropping, and I would argue the conservative politics of the state, which is all small government oriented, those factors are not at all unrelated. So why do I bring all of this up? Because Mississippi is a bellwether for the kind of election and voting policies that may be utilized elsewhere. It's clear that the powers that be in Mississippi want to make it as difficult as possible for anyone other than Republicans and white people, if we're really honest, to gain much political power. If we allow this to happen in one state, then it can happen in any state. We've already seen this in places like North Carolina, where egregious instances of racial and political gerrymandering have been exposed. I also bring this up because it raises another question. What's the best political approach for Democrats right now? Is it to run as moderates in hopes of peeling away some swing voters from the Republican Party and independents? Or is the better approach to run as unabashedly liberal and progressive and to seek to turn out new voters rather than spend much time convincing swing voters? You can think of Stacey Abrams' legendary gubernatorial run in Georgia. Well, In Mississippi, Attorney General Jim Hood, who's a white man, ran as a moderate. He made commercials in front of pickup trucks and holding rifles. He sent the message to conservative white Mississippians, hey, I'm basically just like any other Republican, but maybe I want to expand access to medical care. It doesn't appear this message resonated much with voters, especially black voters. Despite Hood having a better chance than any Democratic challenger in recent memory, black voter turnout in many areas was actually down. So we have to ask to what extent gerrymandering and voter suppression makes it harder for poor people and black people to vote. But we also need to acknowledge that black folks didn't see an inspiring candidate. All of this seems to point to the strategy of just running your race. If you're a Democrat, be a Democrat and and don't retreat from that. Republicans are proudly running as conservatives and members of the GOP, but Democrats, with an eye toward white voters, moderate their politics and regress to the mean. Now, that may work on some occasions and in some contexts, but if you want to inspire people to get out and vote, I think you need to do something differently. Someone who isn't afraid to offer bold stances that may sharply contrast with both Republicans and moderate Democrats probably, in my view, has a better chance of turning out new voters than someone who takes a middle-of-the-road or more moderate approach in an attempt to appeal to white, right-leaning voters. So all of this gets back to the national election. We're looking at an extensive Democratic primary field and some candidates such as Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar are positioning themselves as more centrist than Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders. Basically, they're saying, if you don't like Joe Biden, take a look at us. Some argue that this is the way for Democrats to win in 2020. And I think a lot of Democratic voters trying to play it safe and trying to do anything to beat Donald Trump find appeal in this. Uh, The moderates or the centrists think they can't alienate white voters by being too liberal or progressive. They're arguing that Americans want a return to normalcy, like it was before Trump. And the best way to do that is to play to the middle. Others think that now is the time for deep change. They think that the best way to win 2020 is to turn out new voters. And you do that best by presenting inspiring visions for the future, even if they may seem uphill or unrealistic. So I don't have the answer. And it could be that it depends too much on the local and state context to decide. But after Mississippi's gubernatorial election, I can say that I'm ready for a change in our politics. Now we come to the portion of the podcast called, unfortunately, Tisbits. And this is what I want to say. Be your full racially and ethnically specific self. So I've been doing a ton of traveling lately. Just uh, check out my Facebook page or Instagram feed and you will see pictures from different places I've been to, mostly colleges and universities. It's been great. Um, I've I've, I've met amazing and incredible people. Um, And I'm, I'm going to these places. I'm talking about The Color of Compromise, The Truth About the American Church's Complicity in Racism, which is my first book and uh, talking about race in the church. So it's always, you know, sort of a tense conversation, especially at many of these Christian colleges and universities, which are almost invariably majority white. Now, there's always a mix of students. There are some Asian students, Latin American, some black, but that tends to be a very small number. If you're looking specifically at African Americans, maybe two to three percent of the undergraduate uh, population. So in that context, I think it's tempting to speak very broadly because you want to appeal, you want to to be heard by white students as well as students of color, no matter what their specific racial or ethnic background. Um, And when I talk about race in these settings, I feel a little guilty because – I talk mainly about the black-white racial divide, and I don't want people to feel left out of that conversation. I always try to preface it and say that these principles apply across a lot of kinds of differences. Um, But I've also decided that when I go places, I'm speaking to the black students. Not only to them, but mainly to them. This is going to rub some people the wrong way, I know. But you can't do a really great job of speaking to everybody. In the attempt to go broad, you sacrifice going deep, right? And so that's the tension that we face. And sometimes it is more appropriate to to go broad. Sometimes it's more appropriate to go deep. But I've decided I've got one shot to speak to um, the issues that I care about and that I've studied and written about and speak about. And I've also decided that in many of these environments, it's rare for someone to hear about history, race, and religion at all, let alone from a black person. And it's rare for non-black people to have that experience as well. So this isn't just a benefit for black people. Here's what I've found, and maybe you can apply it. The more specific you are, the more people can learn from what you have to say. So for me, the more I talk about black experiences, history, culture, the more people actually learn about black people. That's the same for you. I think it behooves all of us to bring our fullest selves to any conversation that includes us in all our racial and ethnic particularity. I need you in all of your Koreanness, in all of your Native Americanness, in all of your Nigerianness, or in all of your multiracial multiethnicness. Don't downplay your culture and heritage because you're in a racially and ethnically mixed group. If you hide that part of yourself, then we'll be moving towards uniformity instead of unity. What we've always said at The Witness is that specific does not mean exclusive. We're a black Christian collective, but we have writers and followers from across the racial and ethnic spectrum. People find their stories intersecting with the stories of black Christians, and it's beautiful. And as a black person, I want to find the ways that my story intersects with yours as Japanese or French or South African. I prefer this instead of some well-meaning but misguided attempt to always be multi-ethnic all the time. You end up, as I said, going wide but not deep. You give light touches that name people and cultures, but you don't do much to truly make them feel seen, included, and valued. Sure, there are times to be broad, but it's probably less often than you think. So be your full self, and let us see you and your fully racially and ethnically embodied self. That's the person who the world needs to see. I look forward to meeting you. That's it for this week. Remember two things. You can register for this book giveaway of evangelicals. All you have to do is share this podcast episode and uh, send me a screenshot to footnotes1 at gmail, footnotespod1 at gmail.com. That's footnotespod1 at gmail.com. Also, if you'd like to support this trip to South Africa, go to the show notes. There's a web address there and you can donate there. Like my author page on Facebook, facebook facebook.com. Forward slash Jamar Tisby one. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at Jamar Tisby. And thanks to our production assistant, Christina Button, our award winning producer, Bo York. Footnotes is part of the Witness Podcast suite. Check out the WitnessBcc.com for more great content. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Jamar Tisby, and this is Footnotes.